Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 30th, 2019. This is episode 2481 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday. That means it's time for a Just Jack show where we take one subject and we break it down. Today we have episode 2481, Half Acre Homesteading. Part four, and today we're going to talk about plant propagation as it fits in on the small homestead or the zone one of a larger property. That area right outside of your door when you walk out, that first little bit of property you see, uh, which will do the majority of the production of the things that you actually consume from a standpoint of being a homesteader. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on where you live and how much land you have, between, you know, a 20th to a half of an acre. And so that's the way we're going to come at this today as well, with that small-scale homesteading in this series that we've been doing. Creation of that 120th a half-acre system where you'll spend the majority of your activity, and hence it's ultra-productive, and gives you the greatest ROI on your efforts. In this series, I've been covering techniques from varieties of vegetables and perennials to tools. And today we're going to talk about how we propagate plants for ourselves, whether it be perennials for our trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, or for our gardens and our annuals for our you know mainstay uh, caloric production. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy today's show. I think it's going to be a good one, and I think it's one of the areas that people have the most frustration, and sometimes it's probably because they dig into it, no pun intended, too quickly. And we'll talk that, about that a little bit today as well, that there is a place for Uh, starting your own plants and doing your own plant propagation and things like that. There's a place for going to the nursery and buying plants and sticking them in the ground. There really is. And there's a place for using, you know, for planting certain varieties of plants that don't really need to be propagated in the standpoint of the way we mean it today, such as beans and squash, where it's just easier to just go ahead and dump seeds in the ground uh, and make sure you take good care of them. Uh, we're going to dig into all that today and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. <clears throat> you know, we're going to talk mostly about plants today, but, you know, the way I get a lot of my vegetables is I eat the animals that eat the vegetables, right? Beef and chicken and pork and stuff like that. I, I get my veggies by eating a daily uh, dose of herbivore. And I am kind of picky when it comes to meat. I want high-quality meat. I want it to be... Uh, taken care of humanely, I want, you know, grass-fed beef. I want pastured pork. Uh, I want pastured poultry. But I also don't want to give up anything on the quality of the meat that it's itself. And I, I'm the guy that when I go to the store, like, my wife won't even pick out meat. She's like, you just go do it because I'm going to pick the wrong package. And I am that guy, and I, I don't apologize for it. I know what I like. Well, everything that comes in my butcher box, I am more than happy with. It's like having a personal shopper that can actually meet my standards, uh, bring me a big box of frozen meat every month right to my front door. 
I think you'll enjoy them too. You can learn more at ButcherBox.com. But if you're an MSB member, remember, you get $10 off every single order at ButcherBox as an MSB member. So if you have an annual subscription, that one benefit alone is worth $120 a year to you. So make sure you are taking advantage of your MSB discount on ButcherBox if you're a member. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home is really easy for me to endorse because I've been reading it since 1993. Great authors, great material. It's a quarterly. They'll send it to your house. It's like having uh, building an encyclopedia of knowledge over time. That's what having a subscription to Backwoods Home Magazines like. I think you'll really enjoy it. If, if people, if somebody asks me, you know, what I can only get one source of informational magazine. I can only have one subscription out of everything that's available, grit, Mother Earth News, Backwoods Home, etc., what should I get? I wouldn't hesitate for a second to say Backwoods Home. Again, um, I subscribed to Backwoods Home. It was in 93, actually. It was 94, because I finally had a job where it was responsible to get a magazine subscription. Um, but I did that back in, in early 94. First found them in 93 was buying the individual copies at the bookstore down the road that I had to walk to because I didn't have a car yet after I got out of the Army. And uh, once I got a job and got on my feet, they were the first, like, adult act in my life in some ways outside of the military, you know, where you actually join the adult world and do something that adults do uh, besides go to bars and party and chase girls and be stupid, right? And subscribing to a magazine that actually comes to your address, maybe that was my first one. And it was Backwoods Home, and I am still a subscriber today. So check them out at Backwoods Home. Dot com. With that, let's get into it. I want to remind you again, I need calls for the Jerk Show. That is episode 2500, and we are less than 20 episodes. We are now 19 episodes from episode 2500. Call in to the Jerk Line. Tell us how TSP has impacted your life for the better. Call me a jerk while you're at it. The number, 877-644-1345. The Jerk Line again, 877-644-1345. Also, YouTube channel of the week. Um, this week is a channel called Happen Films. About 130,000 subscribers. Very high-end production value. Micro-documentaries of uh, things like we're going to talk about today. Permaculture and growing your own food and uh, living a low-income lifestyle. Urban homesteading. Tiny houses. Small houses. Living off-grid, all of that good stuff. This is a really well-done channel. Uh, most of the segments are somewhere between like 6 and 18 minutes. So they're not real super long ones. Uh, it makes it easy to kind of binge the channel a bit. Definitely worth subscribing to. Again, the channel uh, name is Happen Films. Like, make it happen. Happen Films. Uh, there is a link in the show notes today, and I do recommend you consider subscribing to them. Remember, if you want to suggest channels for Channel of the Week, send the email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line, and put something like TSPC YouTube channel, and I'll put them into a folder. A lot of you guys have done that. I want you to know that a lot of the stuff you guys sent in is going to eventually get featured, but the list is pretty long. So if you sent me something, you're like, that jerk's not... Doing my, that's not I'm not really that big of a jerk. I'm not doing it to you. I just haven't gotten to you yet. All right, so let's start off today with plant propagation and from the standpoint of what are the reasons for propagating your own plants? Why why would we do that? Why wouldn't we just go down to Joe's Nursery and get you know six pepper plants and six tomato plants and a tree and a bush and a shrub or whatever and uh, you know do business locally? There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and I'm going to get into a quick segment before we 
um, segue into the actual methods of doing this uh, on why maybe you shouldn't try to self-propagate everything. In fact, why you probably should not uh, starting out of the gate. But there's some real reasons to develop the skill set over time to where you do the majority of your own propagation. The number one is the re reason is just simply a reduction in expense. Um, if you go down to like the box stores like Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., and you buy tomato plants or pepper plants, they're going to run about a dollar ninety-five to three dollars a plant, and sometimes more. And you got to watch what you're buying because sometimes you buy a bigger pot, the same size plant, and pay two dollars more. So you got to be careful when you do that. And there's some ways around this. I mean, I usually end up buying some plants like that every year, and I go and I find things like, you know, they have a pepper plant in like three-inch pots, and there's two of them in there because it's just easier to throw two seeds in there than one to make sure one grows. I pick the ones with two healthy peppers on it, pull them out, take a razor knife, and cut right through the roots and cut them in half and make two out of one. That could reduce expense. But when you start thinking about the fact that I can go buy a pack of pepper seeds for a dollar to three dollars, And it'll have anywhere between 25 to 50 pepper seeds in it. Even if I'm buying seed, even if I'm not saving seed yet or whatever, uh, the, the cost savings is astronomical. And if I then say, well, this one variety of pepper does really good for me. So next year, I'm going to start, you know, 12 plants for this variety of pepper. And I, now I don't even have to go back and buy a packet of seeds. I'm just going to save seed, and I do good seed-saving seed uh, practices. There's effectively almost no cost in the production of those plants. If I'm using pots or whatever, they can be reused for multiple seasons, a little bit of soil mix. Yeah, there's an expense there, but it's, it's, it's tiny in comparison to the whole. Um, I, I, I'm almost printing money and propagating those plants at that point. So just a straight-up expense reduction. So assuming that we were going to plant 30 plants at $3 a plant for our, our annual garden, uh, things that we wanted to get as started plants versus seeds that go straight in the ground, that's $90. And I can take that number down somewhere between, you know, let's say zero in, in the best-case scenario up to about $20. Bucks. So that, that just dog hunts based on money alone. But that's not the end. Because the next one I have on my list here for you is the ability to produce more food. And you, if you start thinking about what I mean by that, you might think, well, it's the same as reducing expenses. Because instead of, let's say, you know, 30 plants at three bucks a piece, I can plant 100 plants. And maybe it's going to cost me 40 bucks to propagate those 100 plants or less. So I'm still just reducing expenses. But no, it's not just the reduction of expense. Because we all have budgets. We all have budgets. And we all have a point where we're going to say, if that's how much it is, then this is the limit to how much I'm going to do. So in the reduction of expense, we're also expanding the total production capability. Because, because when we start really looking at it, If we get good at propagation and we end up developing good propagation practices and we drive down our costs to the almost nothing that they can be, we then become limited by how much space we have to put plants in and how much work we want to do. So our production becomes theoretically unlimited based on the potential of the land that we're going to plant anyway. 
versus being significantly limited by our budget so we can produce more food. The other reason is for a profit. You'll find, if you grow tomato plants, for instance, that if you need 12, that making 12 tomato plants is not a lot less work than making 50. It's just not that much less work. And, you know, once you're kind of in the, the planting mode, you can easily make 50 instead of 12. Well, now we can talk to all our neighbors or make a posting on Nextdoor or regional Facebook group or something like that and say, hey, I have tomato plants available for a dollar a plant. So if I produce an extra 40 plants, I can make 40 bucks. Now that 40 bucks can be reinvested into my life however I choose, but if I put it straight back into what I can do with my garden, I'm actually using it to feed myself as well. So we can do it for a profit. We won't say too much on that today because we're going to have an episode all on making your small homestead profitable. Uh, but I did want to bring it up today. And then it's also for independence and skill development. Um, in some instances, do you really, if you want to grow certain things, you almost can't do it unless you are at some level involved in the plant propagation process. Uh, almost anything you want to grow, you can probably get seed for <clears throat> or a, you know, a, a, a mother plant, so to say, where we can make cuttings or whatever. But there are certain things that if you want to grow them, you're going to find it very difficult to find locally or even find somebody to ship you a thing. If you, For instance, if you look at a lot of the seed catalogs and you look at the peppers, I keep coming back to peppers because they're one of my great loves of the garden, hot, sweet, both. Um, but... If, if you look at that catalog, you might see a hundred varieties of peppers in there. If over the years you trial a few different varieties and you find one that you really love, that your family really loves, that maybe even sells well in your neighborhood for that little extra profit and all, there's a good chance that it may be one of the dozens of varieties in there that you will never see at a garden center. You'll never see it at Lowe's or Home Depot or any of the box stores. You'll never see it at you know, Mike's Garden Center or Joe Blow's on the side of the road. Uh, most of those tend to do you know, the 12 big things that everybody grows and one or two or three things that are a little less known. Uh, if you start looking at certain plants that are a little less known to the American gardener, um, like garden berries, for instance, or uh, ground cherries, or some of the various things that are starting to come in and become more available, uh, kind of the lost crops of the Incas and stuff, um, stuff like that. Without propagation on your own, you really aren't going to have an opportunity to grow them. And so mostly that I'm speaking of things that are going to require to be started early or they're perennials. If it's a seed crop that gets planted directly in the ground, let's say like amaranth, you're not going to find a lot of amaranth being propagated, but that's not how you do it anyway. You plant it into the ground and it grows wherever it's planted. But there's a lot of stuff out there that if you do not start it early in most of our country, you can't grow it. So there's a certain amount of independence from the systems, but there's also a certain amount of independence from only growing the stuff that the garden center will produce for you. You know, if you want to grow green bell peppers and cubanel peppers and jalapenos, you will never have a hard time finding that stuff available. Somebody else will have done the work for you. Uh, but if you want to grow giant Marconi pepper, for instance, you're going to have to probably, or Korbashi, which is a cool pepper. 
you got to check out Corbashi. Just an awesome-looking pepper. Uh, you want to grow some of that stuff, you can get the seeds easily shipped to your door, but you'll find that even those catalogs that sell plants don't offer those in plant form. Um, so we need the skill set development, and we want the independence that comes with it. Now, after everything I just said, there is a reason you should probably not try to self-propagate everything you're going to grow especially when you're getting started your first or second season, and here's why. Let's say we're going to start gardening, and that's that's one of, like, we, we, we come to this decision, we're going to homestead, or we're going to up our homesteading, and we're going to kind of take a, we're going to retool it and go back into it with renewed vigor and make it more of a thing if, if we've kind of fallen out of it. And we're going to start out by, we're going to put some garden beds in, okay, just setting up the garden beds, doing it right, and planning a, what you're going to plant and where you're going to plant it. That's a skill set. Now, unless you're just living in a place where you just have incredible soil, which very few of us are, you're going to have to develop and build the soil. That's a skill set. Once you get your plants planted, mulched, you have to determine an irrigation schedule that works for you and either install an automated irrigation system or manually irrigate so that your stuff grows. Well, that's a skill set. You're going to have an ongoing need, especially as in the in the formative years, as you're building the quality of the soil, of managing your fertility program, so that your plants don't wither out mid-season and not really produce well for you. That's a skill set. Then, when everything starts to become available for harvest. You're going to need to harvest and then either cook or preserve. Well, that's a skill set. Then at the end of the season, you got to kind of put those beds to bed, so to say, uh, or you're moving into uh, the interim planting of like a fall garden. Either way, that's a skill set. So how many new skill sets do you need to challenge yourself with if, like most people, you're still working a full-time job, et cetera, going into things? So there's nothing wrong with getting those garden beds in and going down at Home Depot or Joe Blow's Garden Center and getting some pepper and tomato plants and sticking to some really easy stuff that first season, you know, squash it as well for your area or beans or something like that that can be easily propagated from seed. If you like eggplant, we talked about that in one of the other episodes, but usually you can get good plants for that. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, plant some cucumbers, some seed, And just develop that first year the skill of gardening. But I think what you need to then be doing is looking to going into that second season. Or for many of you now, you're in we're in that mid season, you know, the darth of summer down here where it's so hot everything dies. Like I I, I had a bean plant, I had like this bed of beans, and they were planted later in the year, so they're not quite where they should be right now. But they all look really good. Like I go out there <clears throat> yesterday. And all these beans are beautiful, and there's just one bean right in the middle of the, the bed, the plant, and it just looks like somebody pissed on it. It's just crumbled up and dead, and I, I yanked it out before I even thought of taking a picture of it. I was going to put, everything's wonderful, I've been perfectly, vegetables in Texas be like, right? Everything's wonderful, I've been perfectly taken care of and perfectly irrigated and fertilized, but it's Texas and it's August, so I think I'll die now, right? So we're, we're in that. But what that means is that you're probably not starting a garden right now. So a lot of you could actually maybe in that first year do some propagation because you have a lot of lead up. Usually the reason I tell people to pull back from the self-propagation is that they decide in March 
that they want a garden and they want to propagate their own plants. And they should have started their seeds around Valentine's Day. So they're two weeks behind. They still got to put their beds in. And they should be putting plants out in, in, in 14 to 30 days that need six weeks to get ready. So if they do everything perfect, they're going to plant, put the plants out two weeks later than they should, and they're not going to do everything perfect. Do you see where I'm coming from? So when you have this long lead-up time, now is a good time to start thinking about this. Many of you guys do garden, and you've not really done propagation before. This is a good time to assess your plants. Because I'll tell you, especially when it comes to like saving seed and starting your own seed, I think that instead of trying to grow 18 million varieties, the best thing most gardeners can do is determine about six things that they'll use, that they can store, that grow well in their area. And they should focus on those core six to eight crops. And that is specific varieties. So peppers is not one for me. For me, one would be Cubanelle peppers. Another one is jalapeno peppers. Now those two... I mean, I grow a lot of other peppers and all. I think they're all cool, but I feed myself with jalapenos and cubanelles because they just do great for me, and they're very, very productive. So I can try, like I mentioned korbashi, I can try to grow a lot of korbashi peppers, but I'm only going to get one or two plants that are going to do well. They go in the extra space. So I'm still working on finding a damn tomato that does really, really good for me down here, but I think I'm getting somewhere. Once I have that, then that's the thing. You know, and then it's dehydrating those. And once you figure those out, those are the ones to really focus on propagating from an annual standpoint. From a perennial standpoint, I think that since we're talking about half acre or less homesteading, you know, how many peach trees do you need? You know, how many goji bushes do you need? How many blackberry canes do you need? You see where I'm going there? Um, that the basic knowledge of how to, how to propagate perennials is all you really need on a half acre. And when you put in some stuff, some of the stuff's going to do well. And then wherever there's room for more of that, propagate that and put it there and, and keep it that simple. Because we're not, you know, there, it, it's great that we can see things. Like, I can't think of the guy's name now. The guy that, uh, Jonathan something and Eric Tussenmeyer Eric is the guy that uh, did the books with Dave Jackie on forest gardening. Him and Jonathan, somebody, they bought this like du split duplex up in, in Connecticut. Uh, and they, they, their backyard has like 200 varieties of perennial plants in it. And it, you know, it, it's, it is that 10th acre type lot. I think that's great and all, but I don't think it's for most people. I really don't. If you want that, go do it. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong, but I really don't think it's for most people because most people want kind of some space for the kids to throw a ball around or a dog to run around and whatever, and you're going to create kind of pathways and borders and spaces, and you want very high production of the things that you're going to use. So when you're in that mode, it makes sense to figure out what's going to work for you and, and just propagate the hell out of that, uh, and then you will reach a point where it gets really easy, and that's the point. If you're working hard all year round, several years into this, if you're if you're running a business and you're making money on it, okay, fine. If it's just homesteading for self production, you're 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 doing something wrong. You need to evaluate how hard you're working and why you're doing this in the first place. Um, when I grew up, my grandfather had a garden. It was probably about 
a little bit big, smaller than a tenth of an acre. The whole the whole thing was a garden. Um, and I mean, I took care of it for him, but I was a twelve year old kid, and I didn't feel like my summer was encumbered by taking care of Granddad's garden. It wasn't a ton of work. Most of the work was harvest by the time we got into summer. And that's what you're shooting for, just so you understand that. Uh, and that's why we want to propagate. We want to propagate to free ourselves so that we can just have what we need, put it in the ground, and develop systems to take care of it so that we're tending it instead of spending our time managing it. So we need to be thinking horticulturally, not agriculturally. Right? And this is something that I've... I've tried to say a million times since the first time I ever heard my my deceased friend Toby Hemingway say it that the human being is not an agricultural species the human being is a horticultural species and the difference is that agriculture is the culture of fields that's what agriculture means field culture and horta means plants so do you want to culture fields or do you want to culture plants And I believe that in the, the small homesteading way, we should be culturing plants. And plants as living creatures, if we give them what they need, we should only have to do a little bit to keep them doing what they need to do to give us what we need from them. So let's talk about some primary methods of propagation. And you know, I'm not going to go deeply and like, give you everything you need to know how to do this. I want to make you aware of them and let you start thinking about how they fit into your homestead, if they fit at all. The number one way that most people are going to propagate uh, on their property is going to be from seed. And there's two aspects of this when we're talking about it from propagation standpoint. So I want to explain what I, where I'm coming from with that word today versus the you know overall dictionary, dictionary meaning of that word. So I, I am saying if you go out and you take a package of bean seeds... And you go to your garden bed and you say, I want beans in this space. And you poke those seeds in the ground. You have planted seeds. You have not propagated plants. Technically, you have propagated plants, but not where I'm coming from today. That's just direct sow. All right? That's what's called on the plant label. So with propagation, there is the making of the plant and or the acquisition of the source material. Okay, so... We're back to the same thing. You want beans in this part of your garden. Last year you grew beans. They did really good. They're an open pollinated variety that reliably reproduces. So being a smart homesteader, you left uh, a certain number of pods of beans toward the end of the season on the plant until they fully matured and began to brown. And they got kind of crispy shells on them. So they were like a hard bean, like for a bean soup. But instead of eating them, being a good little ant, you saved them for the future. And you went out and you put them all in a paper bag and you crumbled up that paper bag so that stuff wouldn't get into them but so it could breathe. And you poured it in a cool, dry place that's kind of dark. And you kept them. And now you have a bag of bean seeds that you created. I feel like that falls under the propagation we're talking about today. Because you have made the source material. Now you can go direct sow again. All right? Now, when the other side, though, is a plant that needs to be started 
in I don't care if it's indoors, a greenhouse, whatever, it needs to be in some protected environment prior to going into its final growing place. That's what I'm also talking about from seed. Now, that could be we found a really great variety of tomato, we ordered it from Park Seed Company, they sent it to us, and we started it. That's half of the propagation process. Or we grew that tomato, it's all open pollinated, we saved that seed last year like we did the beans, and we started it. So it's up to you how much of the process you want to do, but I'm coming at this from both sides. When we look at doing this, the place that I'm most concerned with making you think about it today and how it fits into your life, if it does at all, is pre-growing the plant in a protected environment. The main reason we do this, and it maybe it's not really the main reason we should be doing this, but it's the main reason we do it, is to start the plants when it still freezes outside and they would die outside, Or even if they wouldn't die, they would get so stunted. Lettuce varieties, for instance. There's a lot of varieties of lettuce that if you put them out in super cold weather, they might grow and even germinate on a day when the soil gets warm enough, but they will just never really do well. We need to kind of get some strength into them before they go on the ground. Spinaches, too, etc. Though Both of those, we generally are better off waiting until we direct sow. But you see what I'm saying? We're going to try to take this tomato plant that if we took it and we put it outside and we got one day down to 28 degrees, it's going to die. So we need to grow it up to a nice, strong, stocky plant so that we know we're not going to get another freeze this year. And we put that plant out there, it's off to a good start. It's had a month and a half of growth. So that we're getting a harvest before the season ends or before the summer gets too hot, depending on where we live. When we're doing that, and we're, we're going to want to look at our systems being um, indoor, under lights, or a greenhouse, or a coal frame system. And we're going to get into the individual systems here in a minute. But that's where we're going with seeds, mostly. The other place we might go with seeds are into grow beds, especially if we're talking about perennials and trees and stuff like that. The other way that we can propagate, and it's one of the best ways in the world to propagate certain plants, is through root, rooting cuttings. And a classic example of this would be sweet potatoes. And sweet potato is a great place for you to start making your own plants. It really is. Because all you need is a sweet potato that is, generally if you get an organic sweet potato, this will work. You, you won't have to worry about it being sprayed with some sort of a, an inhibitor, a sprouting inhibitor then. And we can take a sweet potato and take a shallow dish of water, And we'll lay that sweet potato on its side in that shallow dish of water until the water comes up about a third to a half of the way up on the potato. And in a few weeks, you'll have little sprouts start to form and grow out of the potato. And they'll grow to a certain height, and then you it's called they call them slips because you just kind of grab them and slip them off the potato and put them in a jar of water, and they will root. And one of the easiest things to root you can get your hands on. And if we can root those... We can then put them out in the garden. But if we have a long growing season like we have here, pretty soon that's grown into a huge vine. Well, we can just cut the tips off of that, pull some of the leaves off that vine, stick that in a glass of water, it'll root again, and we can plant that. And we can propagate hundreds and hundreds of pounds of sweet potatoes from one sweet potato by rooting cuttings. Likewise, some perennials are very easy to root. Um, peppermint. In fact, almost every mint is pretty much the same thing. Cut a tip off, strip the bottom of the thing, stick it in some water, and it'll root. 
um, goji berry. Goji berries root like that. And, I mean, what they, they generally don't do well in water, but we cut. Now you're no perennial. Okay? When you're in a perennial and you're rooting cuttings, you generally want new growth that's gotten to where it's what you would call snappable. So what I mean by that is you have your old growth, your hardwoods. And there are some things that will root from hardwood cuttings. But you'll have your new growth, this year's growth, and it, you get these little green shoots coming up. And when you first start getting green shoots on any kind of a woody perennial, if you bend it, they just kind of fold in half like a sad liberal paper straw, right? Uh, but if you wait, if you wait and they get a little bit sturdier before they get really hard, they're still really flexible. But if you bend them far enough, they kind of snap like a, like a toothpick. That's the place you want to be with mints and goji and everything. And the goji, you just put it in moist soil, keep it in shade, and in a couple weeks it'll root, you have a new plant. And then there's various levels in between of ways where we can root cuttings. Some require a lot of work. We'll talk about the methods of doing it here in a minute. And some are really, really easy. But we're just taking cuttings and rooting them. The next one's called layering. And layering is basically a, a lazy-ass man's way. There's another name for lazy-ass man. When he gets done what he wants done, I call him a smart man. A smart, lazy-ass man's way of rooting cuttings. It's, it's rooting a cutting, but we don't cut it until we feel like it. And what I mean by that is, let's go back to the sweet potato, just for an easy example. We can take that sweet potato vine that's going down a bed, you know, an in-ground bed, and decide, hey, it'd be great if this, this plant was rooted here, too, because it would get more water, and then it would put tubers down there, and I'd have more to harvest. So all we do is take that vine, dig the dirt up a little bit, And leave the, don't cut it loose, just leave it to, you know, as a single vine, put it in the ground and put dirt over top of it and keep it moist and it'll root. And once it roots, it'll start growing even more. And at that point, we can either cut the mother vine loose and let it go somewhere else or we can leave it. We can do this with certain bushes and shrubs as well. We can take a single branch and bend it down, dig up some dirt and maybe lay a rock on it to weight it down, cover it up. And when it roots, we can cut it free and plant it somewhere else. And you might wonder, well, how is that different from rooting cuttings? Well, there are plants that are kind of difficult to do a true rooted cutting, where we cut it and then we root it. Uh, they die, they get stunted, they're unhappy, or we have to use specialized systems for them. A lot of those plants, though, if we use a layering technique, where we are simply digging the dirt up and laying it down, Since it's getting all its nutrient and moisture from the mother plant and we're only stimulating one area to put roots out, it gets its roots formed before we cut it loose and therefore it's a lot easier to propagate. The next is division. Division is exactly what it sounds like, dividing things. And some stuff just divides really, really easy. Certain types of bunching onions will do this, Egyptian walking onions, etc. Um, a lot of herbs will do this. Um, red vein sorrel, one of my favorite herbs to grow, one of my favorite salad herbs. It looks great, whatever. It grows in clumps. And when it gets to a certain size, you can just dig it up and just pull it in half, stick the other half back in the ground, put the other half somewhere else, and you, it, it, they just both grow. And there's a lot of plants that you can propagate through division. A lot of bulbs, uh, not, not all of them being necessarily edibles, but a lot of bulbs propagate really easily from division. Uh, daylilies, some daylilies are actually really great 
edible plants as well propagate from division. There are some varieties of edible hostas, even some that are very uh, attractive, that are very ornamental looking, that propagate from division. So propagating from division. And then the last one is grafting. And grafting is a lot more specialized, and we won't get heavily into it today, but it is where we take what is called the scion of one uh, plant and attach it to uh, the rootstock one way or another of another plant. And again, it's a kind of specialized technique. And I think for a half-acre homesteader, you might play around with it a little bit, but it's probably not going to be a mainstay of what you do. It really isn't because, you know, we're talking growing full-size trees or at least semi-dwarf, dwarf trees, things like that. And you're only going to do so much of that anyway. So unless you're doing it for profit, then I would probably not worry too much about it. It's a really great skill to learn. And it it's almost gives you like this, almost like this, I'm now a creationist. And I don't mean it as I believe something, but I am one who creates. Uh, if you know how to graft, you can do you know nefarious things like, I don't know, go down to the park and graft um, the tips of productive pears onto uh, non-productive pears at the park and make food-producing trees out of non-food-producing trees, just for one example. And we can even do grafting with some vegetables, though, again, you're probably moving into monetary uh, things and profit to do this. It's probably not worth it. But you can do things like you can graft um, less disease-resistant varieties of tomato uh, onto the rootstock of heavily disease-resistant hybrid tomatoes uh, to get more production out of an heirloom. So grafting is a great skill. It's just probably not something you're going to do a ton with. In all of these things, we need some sort of a system that we use, right? Because there's the technique, and then there is the, the protocol for the implementation of that technique. Techniques and protocols, right? And the number one way that people tend to propagate from seed for on annual plants is indoors with lights. And it's got a lot of advantages, and it's something I do myself. Um, though it may not be the best method for you because you're limited by space. It's got to be, in, you know, when you do something indoors, uh, you're, you're spending energy on the lights as well as giving up the space for a time. But the advantage is, you know, it's probably about 70 degrees. You know, if you want it a little bit warmer until your seeds germinate, you get a little warming mats and stick them under the, the, the pots and you get your germination really, really fast and you take those away and you got this perfect temperature. There's no wind. There should be no pests. You shouldn't have a bunch of flea beetles flying around your house or something, or aphids. Um, since you're in containers, your soil is a perfect mix of whatever you have. They're right there so you can see them to make sure you, you, you water sufficiently so you don't come back and everything dried up and died. Um, so there's tremendous advantages to doing this indoors. Um, the chief disadvantage really is the expense of the equipment. You know, you want to invest in good lighting. The Kingbow lights that I recommend, tons of you guys have bought those. Lots of you guys like them. But they require you to develop a way to be able to get them really close to the plants and slowly raise them up as the plants grow because they're only so powerful. Uh, if you go to more powerful lights, of course, they cost more, and then there's more electricity that goes into them. But it's probably the easiest way to find success as long as you get good lighting. The number one reason people fail is they don't have good lights or they don't apply the lights uh, the right way. 
So those Kingbow 45-watt lights that I have mentioned a bunch of times and tons of you guys have bought, if you set a seed flat up, put your seeds in it, and set that light 18 inches above that seed flat, you won't get very good results. It'll probably work to a degree, and work is, you know, it depends on what you mean by work. But when you grow seeds into plants to put out in the garden, you want stocky, mean little plants, right? You don't want, you know, tall, white boy, three-point uh, three shooting basketball plants. You want Filipino wrestler plants, right? When I was in high school, there was this one kid. He was a Filipino kid. Man, I didn't want to wrestle that kid. Uh, he was, you know, six inches shorter than me and weighed the same I did. And just the center of gravity was crazy. And that's he had that stocky build, you know, that I'm talking about. And that's what you're looking for is that stocky little mean plant that, that has all that aggression kind of going for it. And you get that by that plant having all the light that it needs. If that light, the plant is reaching for the light, you get lanky, uh, leggy and lanky plants that fall over and are weak. So that's number one. Number two is overwatering, and you get mold or downy mildew or damp off or something like that. Those are your two number one ways people kill plants. That's something to think about. The next, and I think the best option, if you have the means to make it work, and you have to understand what that means, is either greenhouses or cold frames. So a cold frame is something that goes in the ground, has a lid, a glass lid that closes on top of it. I've seen people make them with straw bales as well, above grade, what have you. And usually um, one of the ways that people will make them work even better is you kind of dig them out and put in a new layer of compost that's just starting to break down, and that produces residual heat, keeps plants warm. Uh, that's cold frames and, and what have you. Uh, greenhouses, everybody knows what a greenhouse is. This is where people get into trouble with a greenhouse. Joe listens to Jack's show. Joe decides, hey, I want to grow my own tomatoes this year. So Joe goes to Amazon through tspaz.com, of course, because Joe likes the show and wants to support us. And he buys one of those springhouse greenhouses that Jack talked about. So he buys himself a little 6x8 greenhouse, puts some little cheap uh, shelves in there, puts it out in the sun, sets it all up, walks out there in the sun on a cold February day and says, holy crap, it works. It's like 90 degrees in here, even though it's like 40 degrees outside. So Joe gets all his plants together and plants them. And, uh, you know, he gets his seeds started and going. Maybe he even gets them to sprout in the house where they're warmer. He puts them out in the greenhouse. Temperature's going to go down to 27 degrees tonight. And Joe goes, nah, I got a greenhouse. And Joe goes out the next morning and all his plants are dead. They've all frozen and, and stunted and died. What the hell? I had a greenhouse. Well, the thing is, if you have a greenhouse and you haven't done anything to retain heat overnight, the, the temperature inside your greenhouse will be the same as the temperature outside your greenhouse about 20 minutes after the sun goes down, at best. They will equalize. I know it seems crazy, but they will. And you'll say, but Jack, I've had plants that would absolutely die in a frost, and we had a frost, and they survived in my greenhouse. Well, you might have had a little residual warmth, but a lot of times what that is is you actually keep the frost from settling on the plant. So the plant can handle 29, 30 degrees, but what it can't handle is moisture falling on it, plus that, plus being all the way down on the ground, 
where the temperature is actually 26 degrees instead of four feet up on a table where it's actually the ambient of 29 degrees. So if we're going to do a greenhouse, we're either going to have to build a, a true passive solar greenhouse type system where we're maintaining temperatures above freezing overnight through some sort of thermal battery, or we're going to have to heat it. Heating it is not the devil, though. And if you live in a lot of the southern climates, it can be a really good way to go because you might find yourself only having to heat. You know, if you're growing in your greenhouse and starting plants in your greenhouse, let's say three months out of the year, you might heat it 21 days. And if you can do that, it's probably economically viable to do so, especially if you're producing not just seeds that you're starting, but other plants through uh, your winter to extend your season. Uh, and you're probably also, out of that 21 days you're heating it, you're probably only heating it from about 6 o'clock at night to about 8 o'clock in the morning. So you're doing 21 days, 12, hour, you know, 12, 14 hours at a time. And propane can be real, really efficient in there. And if we start building in some insulation and stuff like that, instead of using the cheap spring houses and what have you, we can do a lot. The other thing is the smaller the space, the less it takes to heat it. So we can either build a small greenhouse, because if all we're doing is starting plants, we don't need a big area, or we can build a much larger greenhouse and grow our lettuces and kale and spinach and coal crops and beets and stuff like that through our winter where they can handle the freezing temperatures overnight, but they need the warmth in the day to grow vigorously. And then we can close off a little space inside that greenhouse, a little starting plant area, and just heat that space. And that can cut our cost of heating to almost you know very, very little. If we get that space small enough, we might be able to heat it with a 100-watt light bulb. And no, I'm not kidding. right? You might want two, though, in case one dies on you overnight. And you need old-style polar bear-killing light bulbs to do this with, not your fluorescent ones. Um, but that is probably, if you can do it the best way. The next is what we call misting systems, or specifically intermittent misting systems. And this is really specialized. This is not really for your garden. This is for your rooting of cuttings from perennials that are more difficult to root. And I won't, I won't get deep into that today, but this is the type of thing that you would do for a profit. Because you could take a certain plant, let's say something that's a high dollar plant like a gumi. A gumi is like a really big autumn olive from like the Ukraine, is what gumis are. They're a fantastic fruit. And if you... Try to root a hundred cuttings. You might get two. Really difficult plant to root. But if we put them in an intermittent misting system, and the way that works is there's a timer and a frequency, and every so often, and it's quite frequent, it's like in, in measured in seconds. For like half a second, the system goes and mists. Kind of like when you're at the grocery store and they miss the vegetables, only it's a much finer mist. And it keeps the humidity at a perfect point where those cuttings don't die and they don't get sick, they don't look like crap ever, and they root. And you might go from you know, getting two to four out of 100 cuttings to root to getting 95, even 100% sometimes of them to root. So now you have the ability to produce cuttings into roots that can then be grown out for, let's say, six months 
into a small potted plant that sells for somewhere between $5 and $20. So if you have a big piece of land and you want to plant 200 gummies, and that would be kind of interesting to do and a really interesting crop to have at a farmer's market that no one else would, uh, but you almost have to build a system like that because you really can't afford to go out and buy these things for $20 to $30 a plant, which is what they'll cost you. But if you live in a neighborhood and you're doing a half-acre or less homestead, you probably don't want 200 gummies unless you have a way to sell them. But I didn't want to leave that system out. The next is grow beds, and this is also for propagation. This is generally done from seed, but this would be, um, there's a lot of perennial fruit trees, nut trees, bushes, etc., vines, that grow just fine from seed. Uh, Bartlett pear would be an example. You can grow pears. Bartlett pears from Bartlett pear seed, they grow beautiful pears. You don't have to, everything does not have to be grafted. Uh, Antonovka apple grows great from seed. Perfect, wonderful apple. Um, big tree. Um, hazelnuts, chestnuts, pecans, all of these can be propagated from seed. A grow bed is simply something that looks like a raised garden bed with a really friable, loose soil, and we can plant trees or shrubs really, really densely, only a couple inches apart. We can grow hundreds of trees in a 4 by 8 thing for a single season into a long whip, and then we can either graft onto that if we're going to use as rootstock or grow it out or sell it. And so when I say grow beds, that's generally what I'm speaking of. And then aquaponics-based propagation. And this is something that I've said that I think everybody should explore aquaponics just for the ability to root cuttings. Because I haven't found anything that roots cuttings as reliably as an ebb and flow bed, including things that I have never been able to get to root. Uh, there's a plant called Kronzis that I've been working with, and it is a little tuber. And if you see a bowl of them in a picture, it looks like somebody's eating some weird crap from Star Trek, like some Klingon grubs or something. Uh, but they're not, they're not grubs. They're a little tuber root, and they're great. Uh, some people refer to them as Chinese artichokes, though it doesn't really make any sense to call them that. And you, if you get a tuber and you put it in the ground, it grows. But once you have a plant growing... One of the great things to be able to do with a tuber-based plant is to not bother it and take cuttings from it, root those, and grow more. Well, I've tried everything to root Kronzis, and it looks like mint. doesn't smell like it or taste like it, but it looks... So you just know it'll root. Uh, it just dies. It just dies. You stick it in an flow bed, it looks like it's going to die for about a week, and then all of a sudden it starts growing, and you pull it out, and it roots all over it. And then you plant it, and it'll start setting tubers. So that's just one example of plant propagation with an ebb and flow bed. One of the things I love to do, when we're out of green onions, it's time for new ones, whatever, in the gardens. Uh, we go to the store and buy them. I just stick them straight in an ebb and flow bed, and they just start growing. And we cut them from that bed, and you, know, you get a year of cuttings off of a, a green onion you stick in there. So that's not propagation to go somewhere else, but we're propagating the food portion. And, and that's just really, really powerful. Uh, I mentioned goji berry. Man, you take goji berry cuttings and stick them in an ebb and flow bed, they root. Um, gumi, again, like that is the one of the hardest things I've ever tried to root. To get those to root in an ebb and flow bed, I did have to resort to a powdered uh, rooting hormone. 
and you got to get the green stem cuttings at just the right time. But if you do that, you get like 80% rooting off of gummies. So that's, that's an extremely high rate. And almost everything you can think of in your garden that you can propagate from cuttings will propagate easier in an ebb and flow bed than anywhere else. I mentioned sweet potatoes. You cut the slips, you put them in water. Sometimes they kind of rot off at the tips, and they don't really look healthy. It takes them a while. You put some sweet potato slips in an ebb and flow bed, and you better get it out of there within five days, or it'll start growing, and you won't be able to get it out, and the roots will take over your ebb and flow bed and ruin it on you. I mean, that's how powerful they are for rooting. So I think that... Uh, a lot of stuff, tomatoes. You know, if you plant a dozen tomatoes and you have problems with blight, one of the ways you can combat that is you get those tomatoes as big as you can and into your garden or your containers you're growing them in as early as you can. So we start our plants, you know, seven weeks instead of six weeks before the last frost date. We get them really big, husky tomato plants. And we put them in there so that we're going to get, and we plant an early variety. So we are going to get an early tomato plant, uh, early harvest. And as that plant starts to grow, you cut suckers and you drop the suckers into your ebb and flow beds. And then you'll get your big harvest of tomato. And that, if you live in a place with either blight or forsythium wilt or whatever, and you plant the most disease resistant you can, you still get to a point where it really starts to take over and it's not worth having those plants in there anymore. Even if they're not completely dead, they're just not productive anymore, you've taken your harvest. And small fruited tomatoes are best for this because that way they mature much earlier. So by then you've taken those tips off those plants. You say, well, they're diseased. But these diseases progress from the roots upward. So those tips are not diseased. And they're over here in my aquaponics system that doesn't have problems with this disease because it's, it's never had the opportunity to develop that fungus or that disease because I don't grow tomatoes in it. I only propagate them. So now we take those rooted um, suckers, we put them into a pot of clean soil and we grow them out even further and then we plant them as a late second tomato crop and we beat out the blight and the wilt, etc. So that's, that's a way to use this technique to moderate the seasonality of a production of a key crop for people like tomatoes. So that's that's another way to look at propagation. Uh, the last one I want to come back to just starting plants from seed. It's what I call the right spot technique. And that sounds kind of stupid, I guess, until you understand what I mean by it. So right now, what is the right spot to start tomatoes or even peppers or cucumbers outdoors for me when I am not going to have my first frost until sometime around Thanksgiving most years? And, and the answer is a place that gets very, very modest sun and mostly shade. Something that maybe gets a couple hours of sun in the morning, and by the time the sun's really intense, it's getting ambient light but mostly shade, like 60% shade or more. That's the right spot for me. And I can plant a lot of things that can handle frost now to get well started to put in the ground once the temperature's not 100 million degrees anymore. So you're talking mid-September, mid to third week of September. Well, I want to be starting those plants right now. This is six weeks out. And some of them maybe I want to start like four weeks out. So in two weeks I want to start those plants. These would be plants like Swiss chard. 
broccoli, kale. These are plants I want to start four weeks out. Those are plants four weeks out. The broccoli, six weeks. So now the Swiss chard, the kale, things like that, four weeks out. And I need that shady spot. I don't need to go indoors. The, the ambient temperature being 100 degrees, if it's in the shade, that's fine. The seeds are happy. They'll germinate really, really quick. What they can't handle is the heat beating on them. So I need the right spot. So for instance, for me, where's the right spot? The eastern wall of my house, my outbuildings, etc. Because they get eastern morning sun. There's trees all along there. So once the sun gets high, it's got tree shade. And once the sun starts to go into the western sky, it's got building shade. But yet it's got that reflective ambient light all around it. And as I'm watching those plants grow, if they start to get leggy or need a little more light, I can just move them somewhere where they get a little bit more direct sun for a little bit longer and, and grow them into healthy, stocky seedlings and do that all outside. And this is when I started this section. I said that I think a lot of people maybe that do their start their seeds in the spring, maybe that's not the best time for them. If you have a long-growing season, Some of your best gardening is in the fall. But there's there's a couple reasons for failure. One, um, you go get plants from the, the stores who got theirs in too early and stunted them or tried to hold them over from the late summer, early late late spring, early summer, and they're dead. Or you plant your seeds and you say, well, if I want this plant to be producing by November 20th, it needs to go on the ground in October, August 15th, and it just can't. Even if it's something you would normally direct sow, like Swiss chard is a great plant to plant right in your garden. But if you plant it in Texas, in your garden, in mostly full sun, right now, and that little seedling comes up, even with your mulch down, The surface temperature of that mulch, not the soil temperature. So your plant that's a foot tall, it's not real happy about this, but in general it gets along. It's okay. I'm, I'm up here in the air, and I've got roots deep in the soil, and I'm transpiring moisture to keep myself cool. But that little Swiss chard plant comes up, and the surface temperature there could be like 120 degrees. It's like, screw it, I'm dying. You're a dick for planting me here, so now I'm going to die to show you you know, what happens when you plant me here. That's the broccoli plant. You can direct sow broccoli in the right environment, but yeah, it's going to come up. 120, screw this, I'm out, I'm dead. But if we plant that thing in the shade, then it can do just fine. And I think a lot of people in southern climates that have that long growing season that need to be putting plants on the ground somewhere around the, 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 the 7th to the 21st of September. Your best time for starting plants is right now, and your best place is probably the quote-unquote right spot on your property, which you either have or you can make. How would we make one? 60% shade sounds about perfect. So if we got ourselves some 60% shade cloth, and not expensive stuff here, because we don't need a lot to do this, and something like a table, and built a little canopy, we could have a table, like a picnic table or a cheap plastic and metal folding table, up against a wall somewhere, and we could manage that shade cloth to get the amount of shade that we want, 
And you could have a whole little nursery of little plants going in there right now. And as you start getting closer to putting them in the ground, you start moving that shade cloth until they get a little bit more sun every day. A little bit. By the time you put them out there, they've been what we call hardened off. And they're robust, and they're strong, and they're adapted to the climate because they've been in it. And now it's cool enough. They've got good root systems. You give them good irrigation, good fertility. And you, I, I generally feel like I get more production in the fall than I do the spring. Fall into early winter, that's where I get the best production. I get great production sometimes in January. I know that sounds crazy, but that's my climate. So you have to adapt this stuff to your climate. Those of you in the north, though, I started this technique as a kid, and Swiss chard was my gateway drug to the right spot technique. Here's how this happened. I was, uh, like I said, when I was a kid, I used to go to my grandfather's every summer in Pennsylvania until we moved there when I was 13. So yeah, I'd be 10, I was somewhere 10, 11 years old. I wanted to grow spinach. I was a weird kid. You didn't have to make me eat my spinach. I liked spinach. I had a crazy hippie aunt named Aunt Kathy who made me a spinach salad and converted me to loving spinach. So I wanted to grow spinach. Well, I was up there for the summer, so it's mid-June. And I tell my grandpa, I want to grow spinach. I can't do it. So we're down at a place called Center Supply. They sell seeds and plants, and I only have spinach seeds. And I'm like, I want to grow spinach. Like, it's too hot, right? So this old man that works Center Supply sees me asking. He goes, I'll tell you what you can grow. You can grow Swiss chard. And I was like, oh, well, What's that like? He goes, it tastes like spinach. Doesn't really, but it was close enough. Then he explains to me what to do. And so I plant it. And it's, even in Pennsylvania, it still is just not doing real good. And the old man says the ground's too hot. So I get an idea, and I take a few pots, and I find a shady spot, and I just plant them in pots. And like two weeks later, I have these little bitty plants, and they're looking pretty good. And like, Three weeks later, I got some really nice plants. So I put them in the ground, and I had to go back to Florida. And my grandparents had a great Swiss, uh, Swiss chard harvest, and they actually started growing it. But that's how I figured that out as a kid, that, look, it's just too hot. And in that situation, you could even put those plants out in the summer, but you can't start them in the ground in the summer. They have to get some body, some size to them where they can shed that heat. That surface heat first. So that's one of the, 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 the most overlooked and, and easiest techniques is just the right spot technique. And the only reason I call it that, it's the right spot technique. It's the shady spot technique. I just don't know what else to call it. I don't know what else you would call it for a technique. Um, what I want to finish with, though, on this is people say that growing your own food is like printing money. And I understand, you know, let's say I get a package of uh, seeds for butternut squash. And a butternut squash, an organic butternut squash, average size, will run about six bucks. And I put that seed in the ground, and I've got two cents into that seed, right? And that plant produces eight butternut squash for me at six bucks a piece. It's $48 worth of food that I got for sticking the seed in the ground. But if I develop propagation techniques, I go from being the guy that can print the money to the guy that can make the printing press, that can make the plates with which to print the money. So it's like making the printing press. It's the way by which you can take your cost from low 
to almost nothing from the production of the plant. And I, I think it is one of the one of the most important skills we can develop as homesteaders, the ability to save seed and propagate plants. But I also feel very strongly about this, and this is going to sound a little bit weird here at the end. I think it's a fundamental human right that we have allowed to atrophy. That in, in a way, it's like Gandhi's march to the sea. So most people are familiar with Gandhi as a name. And they know he had something to do with Indian independence from the British kingdom and something and peace and whatever. But most people don't, I think, really know that the way Gandhi launched his revolution was by marching to the sea in a pair of sandals. And why? The British had prohibited the citizens of India from making their own salt because salt was a British commodity and it was taxed. Whiskey rebellion, anyone? Uh, never mind. Um, anyway, so for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, being surrounded on three sides as the peninsula that India, the subcontinent of India, India is, the Indian people had a great history of making their own salt. When the British took over India, they decided that you didn't need to be doing that anymore. Here's some salt and pay tax on it. So Gandhi looking for a much bigger goal than being able to make salt decided that if you stood on something so fundamental as the right of the people of India to make their own salt, something so fundamental and so universal, Declaration of Independence, anyone? Never mind. That was so universal that would apply to anyone that they could win the politics of the rebellion with the rest of the world over Britain with, you guys are really not letting them make their own salt. So he announces, I'm going to the sea and I'm going to make salt. Of course, this is punishable by being imprisoned, right? But he's going to do it anyway because it's that universal. And it is the key moment that launched everything that the man did that went forward to eventually help India obtain its freedom. In many ways, I feel it is a universal human right. And I think rights always come with corresponding responsibilities. I do believe you have a right to own a gun. And I think a corresponding responsibility is you don't leave your gun loaded laying on the side of an oak tree in your front yard outside of a fence where a child can pick it up. That's just a blatant example. So I believe that some responsibilities or some rights, the, the responsibility that comes with them is the exercise of the right. That if you don't do it, and we don't teach people to do it, you'll lose the right, even if the government doesn't take it away. Even if the powers that be don't directly take it away. It will be taken away through ignorance and apathy. And that the ability to look at a plant and say, this is a good plant, This feeds me. This provides me something useful. This is this, this food or this is medicine or this is a material that I can, I can use to build things. I can build a house with it. I can build a basket with it. I, you know, I, can, I, I, I can use it to stake up another plant. I can use it for whatever. I can make a wreath for a craft or I can make food for my family. This is what this plant does. And this is the means by which that plant 
can be reproduced in a way that gives me more. And in my caring for, my horticulture, my plant culture, I will aid the plant in seeing to its continued existence, and it will aid me in seeing to the continu my continued existence and my species' continued existence. This has been referred to, I can't remember who referred to it as this, but referred to it as our, our deal with plants as the grand bargain. That in our care for them, they would care for us. They would give us food, they would give us medicine, and they would give us materials and fibers. And that is an innate human right. I'm not saying it's under direct threat, as in there's going to be a law. But if, if the government were to pass a law and say you can't save tomato seeds anymore, I think it would be as egregious, or maybe even more so, than the law the British passed that said that the Indians could not make salt. And if something is that intrinsic of a right, then we should exercise it. And more importantly, we should teach our children how to do it and instill in them a value to which they will then teach their children and their children will teach their children's children. That's how important I think this is. And I don't think everybody needs to do everything with it, but I think everybody should do something with it. Because if we, if we don't, humankind, I believe, is at a very precarious point in our evolution right now. That we have so much that we have to look forward to from what technology can do for us that we're becoming very vulnerable to what technology may do to us if we do not retain the skills and the knowledge of our forefathers, we will lose our freedom, maybe not in the direct way that we think of from dystopian, dystopian fiction, but we will lose our freedom, and the victor over us may not be so much the state, but rather our own dependence on technology and systems. And this is one fundamental that if understood and mastered can never be taken away will always work. In every climate there is something you can do this with. And it is what humankind has done for millennia upon millennia upon millennia. Basically science has now figured out the entire Amazon rainforest is a garden. It's man-made. No, man didn't make the river. But when they look at the ratios of trees that produce things that people can use compared to the ones that you would call less useful to humans, the ratios are ridiculous. Even with almost no input now for, for many centuries, with the peoples of that region being wiped out in the 1500s, 1600s from diseases brought in by the Europeans... Entire civilizations that were first explorers said there's, there's thousands and thousands and millions of people in there. And then, you know, by the time they started getting their shit together and coming over here, later explorers went in and said, there's no people there. These people are crazy. There's nobody there. They were dead. They were gone. Smallpox. But their work they did remains. When I was years and years ago, 10 years ago now almost, 10 or 11 years ago, no, uh, 10, 9, 9 to 10 years ago, It was in California for dirt time. 
And Christopher Nidges was walking us around and showing us the edible plants in this kind of mix between mountain and desert climate. And he showed us things like the manzanito, which means basically tiny apple. And that's this fruit that looks like a little apple on it. And he said, when, when the, the European settlers first got here, they didn't understand what was going on. And they wiped out so many of the natives. The natives either didn't want to tell them or weren't able to tell them. But hundreds and hundreds of years, these plants have been managed and cultivated by native peoples. And it's been hundreds of years since they've done it. And, and the systems are just now beginning to fall apart. They were that permanent at that point. Little touches here, little touches there. But it was the understanding that if I take this seed and I put it in this place and I care for it long enough at the right time, I stack time and space the right way, I'll have another one. And it can produce more. And we have been doing this for longer than recorded history. We did not go from hunter-gatherer to agriculture like flipping a switch. Hunter-gatherer societies even today do horticulture. It is a human right And it is a right that comes with the responsibility that it be exercised and taught. I actually think it's that important. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by just simply doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go to tspaz.com, you do your shopping starting there. No matter what you buy, you help support us. But... Um, you also have all the products that I've reviewed over the years. Again, you can see all of the products that I've reviewed over the years, um, alphabetical and category, and you can just see the latest reviews and scroll through them. Uh, today's item of the day, I'm bringing around, second time I brought this product around, it's uh, wasabi powder, and it is made by a company called Sushi Sonic, and it is 100% actual wasabi. Wasabi is um, a vegetable that is pretty much an aquatic. It needs a very moist environment to grow. It grows a, a large root. And actual wasabi comes from the root of the wasabi plant. The crazy thing is, almost everything that you buy that says wasabi on it, including things that say real wasabi, or actual authentic wasabi, or whatever, there's no government agency or body that oversees that and says what that means. So people can pretty much get away with anything And you have to actually read labels. This product is 100% real wasabi. It's not mustard and horseradish with green food coloring, which is what most wasabis are. Most wasabis actually contain very little to no wasabi. This stuff's great, and you know if you don't do wasabi, you won't care, and it doesn't matter, and you can fast forward a few seconds now. Uh, but if you like sushi and you like other things that you do with wasabi, you want to give this stuff a try. It is 100% and it's freeze-dried and it mixes up like that quick and it's just, it is a totally different experience than the crap that you probably get with your gas station sushi. I'll just put it that way. Totally worth giving a shot to. Next up, the other way you can help support us, uh, you can join the member support brigade. It works like this. You want to support the show? You think it's worth your time to listen to? Maybe you think it's worth a couple bucks for the knowledge you get? You think it's worth, let's say, 20 cents an episode. If you think that, join the MSB. That's about what it'll cost you then, 20 cents an episode. If that's all it was, it'd probably be worth doing. 
However, instead of just having that, you'll get discounts to over 70 companies. You use those discounts, you get your money back, you can learn more by going to the Survival Podcast and clicking on Members. That brings us to our song of the day today, uh, and we're in John Denver week. And this is actually a duet. This is John Denver and a guy named Alexander Gradsky. Who's that? He's a Russian. Sounds like a Russian, doesn't he? Um, this song is pretty amazing. It's, to me, it's not the best piece of music I've ever heard. It's the message that is so strong. It's called, What Are We Building Weapons For? Let Us Begin. And the story behind this is John went over to the Soviet Union in 1985. We were still in the middle of the Cold War. And he saw the ruins that were still there, being, that were still honored from the siege of Stalingrad during World War II and the vast amount of death that went on in that war. And he worked with some folks from the Soviet Union in development of the song. One was a, a Russian singer named Alexander Gradsky. And they recorded this song as a duet. And it, I, I believe it was the first time in modern history, anyway, that a, a, a Soviet citizen and a United States citizen performed in a music video together. There's actually a video that goes with this that you can look up in the show notes today. It's pretty amazing. And as you might imagine, what are we building weapons for? It's an anti-war song. But it's told from a very interesting viewpoint, from both the Soviets and from us, and not so much in the 80s, but in the past. It starts out with a farmer from Oklahoma who lost his father in the Korean War and now faces losing his farm when this war was supposedly fought for freedom. And told from the Soviet side, someone that remembers Stalingrad. And yet, Wasn't a really great life as a Soviet citizen in the 80s. And if we really look at it, the people that suffer in the most in war seem to benefit the least in peace. Or certainly benefit the least from the victory or even just simply the end of the conflict and defeat. The people in power seem to always be the ones that benefit. And I have mixed emotions when I watch the video of this song because they show these horrific weapons of war. And they're asking the question, like, what are we building these for? Well, there is an obvious answer. Whether I want it to be an obvious answer or not, there is an obvious answer. If I don't build these weapons and somebody else does and they decide they want what we have, they can just blow the shit out of us and take it. But if you follow that to its logical conclusion without doing anything to de-escalate conflict, the only place you can finally end up is mutually assured destruction, which is where we were by 1985. And there's a line in the song that says something to the effect, it's never been like this before. We have the chance to do this for the last time or something like that. We may be doing this for the last time. And there's two ways to take that. The last time the world goes to war because we find a path to peace. Or the last time the world as we know it goes to war 
because it doesn't really exist after the next one. And I think there's a lot of folks out there today that are you know, younger people, and I'm not picking on you. It's just you don't know. You, you, you didn't live with it. That you never grew up in your mind with the certainty that one day there would be a nuclear war. And I think that's good in a way, because I don't think it's a great way to grow up. But I do think that it's really easy to backslide into that world again if you don't know how bad it is. Because it is an honest truth that when I was a kid, we had drills in school where we hid under our desks and put our heads between our legs. There was a lot of movies and a lot of um, a lot of uh, entertainment based on the concept of nuclear war. People wonder why spending got so crazy in the 80s. And I don't mean government spending, I mean consumer spending. People literally thought, what does it matter? There was a certain fatalism. Sooner or later they're going to do this shit and there's nothing we can do about it. When we look at war, and there is such a tendency by people that call themselves patriots to crap on the people that oppose war, that are anti-war, as being like commie pinko hippies or something. If you're not anti-war, you're pro-war. And I think the only way There's two ways you can be pro-war. Totally brainwashed into it. Or not really understanding what it looks like. War's not like a football game or a soccer game where when your side wins, you're happy and everybody remains untouched and unscathed. And even the people that are hurt, well, it's just those people over there. We have been lulled into believing that because this country has been blessed by two giant oceans that have protected us for most of the countries we've ever gone to war with. There are parts of the world that are less inclined toward war because they've experienced it. This song is an attempt to make people actually think and ask the question. Even if you say we're building weapons for the purpose of defense, what world are we building to reduce the need for them? That's the other side of it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. On my first trip to the Soviet Union, uh, there were an enormous number of things have happened, all of which are completely unforgettable to me. But two of the major ones uh, had to do with meeting a fellow named Alexander Grotsky, uh, who was known as Sasha to over 100 million people. He's the most popular singer-songwriter in the Soviet Union. And along with that meeting, there was an experience at a cemetery in Leningrad known as the Piskoryovskia Memorial Cemetery, in which there are buried over 400,000 people of the more than 600,000 who died in that city alone in the thousand-day siege of Leningrad in the Second World War. Uh, in any case, I, I wrote a song out of that experience and relating it to things going on in our country uh, in the present time and then had the opportunity to go back to the Soviet Union and with Sasha's help get into recording studios in uh, in Moscow and to uh, record the vocals for this song with him and also to include the men's voices uh, uh, from the Red Army Chorus in Moscow and uh, then I had my friend Obi Benz put together the video that you're going to see which is an, an archival video 
to, to go behind uh, the spirit and the meaning of, of what we're singing. And I think that this is simply the best piece of work that I've done in my career. The song is called, What Are We Making Weapons For? Or Let Us Begin. grassland farmer Western Oklahoma 